Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, Mr. Walker. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shiny man? It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken are all here. Hello, Hello there. How are you? That's your cue, guys. Well done. You just about hit it. For a slight delay. Uh, the feeling Jerome Valk is going to feature heavily today, so we should probably set out the relationship between himself and Bladder right at the top. Valk joins FIFA in 2003 as marketing director. Fired in December 2006 after a judge in New York ruled that he lied repeatedly in negotiations with MasterCard and Visa over a sponsorship deal. This is something that we touched on in one of the podcasts last week, in fact. May 2007, just a few months later, Federal Appeals Court throws out that ruling. And uh, the very next month, FIFA say, well, listen, if the courts are going that way, we'll go that way as well. You're back on board with us, Jerome Valk. Not only that... But you get a massive promotion to the position of Secretary General, yeah. number two position below Platter, a position that Valk still holds today. That is a big job. Um, I mean, Jerome Valk is one of these guys, like, uh, you know, the, he's of a very specific type. You, you can see them, for instance, the kind of Troika officials, or if you see um, footage from, you know, the European Commission, you'll see this type of Jerome Valk uh, man. They always wear rimless glasses. There must be a place. There's a place somewhere, Strasbourg or uh, Brussels, where they literally go to get the glasses. Reassuringly expensive. Yeah, we are, we're a member of that European uh, corporate class. Um, the same type of uh, usually dark blue suit and the same slightly high-handed manner. Um, you know, he, he, he certainly, he projects an air of of uh, serene uh, confidence and competence, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously switches effortlessly between languages. Um, sometimes sends jokey emails, like he did to uh, Jack Warner that time. What was that? Uh, well, Jack Warner said, "Oh, this was when he when he was first um, suspended for corruption in 2011." He said, "Oh, I tell you now." I tell you now that the world, that a tsunami is going to hit FIFA and sweep it away, the likes of which the world has never seen. And a couple of days later, he released this email that he got from Jerome Valk, in which uh, Valk was talking about uh, Mohammed bin Hammam. You might remember him as the, the then opponent of Blatter. He said, yeah, I can't understand why this guy is running. You know, I mean, he's not going to win. You know, maybe the Qataris, maybe they think they can just buy um, the presidency the way they bought the World Cup. Uh, so... 
that appeared to be the Secretary General of FIFA saying in an email that Qatar had bought the World Cup. Of course, it was, well, it was just a figure of speech. <laughs> it was just, I mean, come on. Doesn't everybody buy the World Cup in one way or another? One sense or another. I mean, you, you, you make a pitch, you put stuff, you put it out there, and ultimately you reap what you sow, as in many other f- spheres of, of human striving. What's wrong with that? You know, I mean, just because he said they bought the World Cup doesn't necessarily mean that they... Paid money for it? You know, you know what I mean. So he's, he, he'll, he's got a sense of humour, as you can see. Now, the problem that he has at the moment has to do with, uh, well... Let's get into this in the report on sport, in fact. Let's kick the report on sport off with the latest issues surrounding FIFA, Black and Falk. The, the problem that he has is that uh, following a weekend in which uh, various media, including the very well-sourced New York Times, which has been leading the way on this, that's one complaint. Somebody said, oh, how come these, how come these guys turn up with three American journalists in tow? Huh? Huh? How come that happens? You know, this is all part of, a, um, this is all part of a, an American campaign to take us down, and it's part of it is a propaganda war. That's why they've got these these American journalists. But the New York Times does have good sources. They said Jerome Valk um, was the man who was at the centre of this, or caused the payment to be made. It's in the actually the in, indictment that the the feds had. But they said Jerome Valk, um, this general secretary of FIFA, secretary general, I should say, of FIFA, uh, was the orchestrator of this thing whereby the South African Football Association got uh, FIFA to pay ten million dollars that they were going to pay to the South African World Cup Organising Committee. They got them to pay that $10 million instead to a fund controlled by Jack Warner. Uh, uh, so essentially, take it out of the money you're going to give us and just pay Warner. And that Valk was the guy at FIFA who made this happen. FIFA said, no, no, no. That was actually authorised by Julio Grandona, the unfortunately late... Julio Grandona. Yeah, we talked a bit about him in the first podcast. Uh, and then almost, well, not very long after we've said this, um, Jerome Valk, uh, a letter essentially appears which is addressed to him explaining the situation. A letter from the South Africans addressed to him explaining the situation, the action they wanted to take. So it's now a bit awkward for him. How can he claim that he wasn't involved when in fact he was the man contacted by the South Africans to, you know, the, about this whole matter? So that's where he's at at the moment. Although they are still claiming that FIFA are still saying, yep, this doesn't change anything. Well, of course, all the letters that are addressed to us are addressed to the Secretary General. That doesn't mean that he necessarily reads them all. It seems to be the FIFA line. Who reads the letter, though, if it's not either Jerome Valka or someone from his staff? Well, yeah. What uh, what actually uh, happens then to letters... Oh, well, it's another one. Of course, he's too many letters, so we have to throw them all out. Throw that one in the memory hole. Speaking generally, (laughs) I would say that even for uh, an organisation, a non-profit organisation, as cash-rich as FIFA is, $10 10 million million, is a lot. $10 million is a lot in pretty much every company. Yeah. I think, you know, and it's it's the kind of amount that if you were a staffer for Jerome Valk and this letter came across your desk, he says, don't bother me with the small stuff. But anything above, say... Anything in eight figures? Uh, yeah, anything above the million. Let's just start. <laughs> just just flag that with me, and we'll see what see what we'll do with that. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily uh, need to see all your taxi receipts, but you know, if there are any eight figure wire transfers <laughs> uh, flying around the office, maybe just um, put one of those little flags on the email. Just just bend the take the letter, print out the letter, and then just bend the top left hand corner of it slightly, mm. say about an inch in, oh, yeah, just very, so that when I'm going through yeah. the, when I'm going through my mail. 
I'll see. Oh, this one's quite important. This one's one of the eight-figure ones. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, obviously Bladder, since we were speaking last, Bladder won the election and celebrated and was, I mean, you, you just had to laugh at his behavior. He's so, I mean, I find him to be very funny. I think it's very funny to watch that Bladder in action. I mean, there he is uh, trying to explain to the Congress. He's like, well, you know, uh, the age isn't the problem at all. I mean, there are people who are 50 who look old. And, and he kind of was scrunching up his face, like, in, in disgust at these imaginary old-looking, haggard-looking 50-year-olds. Obviously, the point was to show how, was that, by comparison, Sepp Blatter, nearly 80 years old, is is sprightly. But everybody started laughing just at the sheer Alan Partridge nature of what Blatter had just said, at which point Blatter was looking around the audience, thinking, oh, hang on, they're laughing at me. Oh, and then, you know, kind of started started telling a few gags then, you know what I mean? Um, he does that. He, he tends to react to a crowd. He loves, oh, this, this crowd loves me. I better give them more of what they want. You know, like like the quote that we use in that intro, they have asked, yeah, you know, he's he's saying it and the crowd laughs and then then he goes, yeah, yeah, they have asked <laughs> for that, really. <laughs> you know, he just can't, he just loves being a star so much. You know, he was there kind of cavorting around on the stage. The Cristiano Ronaldo walk, we remember that one as well, was he talking to Oxford graduates oh, or, something, yeah. or, or Oxford students Oxford and he mentions Ronaldo having a funny walk and people were tittering and he thought, I'll impress these young folk. I'll do an impression of Ronaldo strutting around. And he gets up and sort of walks around like a like a little 80-year-old robot. Um, very weird. But, I mean, he, he was there, what was it he said? I, you, know, I, you know, people, I like you. I like you. This is what he said to the, to the electorate, you know. From the from the pulpit, I've just been reelected. I like you, you know. I like my job. Let's work together, you know. Let's go FIFA. It was just, it was amazing. I mean, it was just. I like you. Sepp Blatter bestows absolution on the on the electorate, who some of whom have have not voted for him. I mean, since um, this happened, you know, there have been quite a few pieces uh, which seek to kind of explain why Blatter remains so popular, and they all kind of are talking about the fact that. You know, uh, this is a guy who stood up for the interests of African football, stood up for the interests of Asian football, has kind of tilted the power uh, back. Uh, well, not tilted the power back towards them, and has sort of tilted the power away from Europe, you know, has continued what the process that Joao Avalanche began in 1974 of, you know, you Europeans think you can run this whole thing, you think you've got it all sewn up. Well, actually, the world is a lot bigger than that. And, uh, and he's been kind of relying on them. But, you know... And, 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 and that's true to an extent, although I always, I, I'm a, a little puzzled as to why necessarily it still needs to be him. I mean, as far as I can see, that process is, is, is irreversible. You know, if you've got a situation where Asia and Africa between them control nearly half the votes in the FIFA Congress, that's not a political block that's going to be ignored going forward, let's say. Anyone who wants to be FIFA president has got to find a way of appealing to those voters. Although those voters might feel... Oh. Sep, uh, the next guy that we install instead of Sep Ladder, it's not going to be Prince Ali at this stage. Whoever whoever does it in five or six years' time can mightn't have the same force of will that Bladder has necessarily. And some people get to the top of those organisations, and you would imagine that whoever gets to the top of FIFA actually will be quite will have an ability to be to be quite strong in this ongoing FIFA versus UEFA, uh, which is essentially what we're talking about battle. But um, I don't know if they're going to be as strong as Sep Ladder in the minds of the people who are electing Sep Ladder. No. Clearly, they feel. Better the devil, you know. Um, yeah, uh, they they obviously do feel that. Uh, I mean, it it's sort of 
And I suppose, you know, and he, what Bladder does is he goes around and sort of... He, the way that he runs FIFA is he just goes around for, like, a day. So he, go, he, go, he arrives, he flies into, you know, uh, Equatorial Guinea, say, for a day. Stays in, you know, the nicest hotel in the city. Uh, goes, meets everyone, has a couple of photographs taken. Flies out again. Doesn't work on the flight. One of his keys doesn't, to success. Doesn't work on the flight. Or, in fact, anywhere. <laughs> Just <laughs> one of the keys to his, his sprightliness at age 79 is that he hasn't done any work since he became president. <laughs> he leaves that... He to, just opens Jerome Valk's mail. That's, that's why all. That's why he hires a guy like, like Jerome Valk. You know, Jerome Valk does the work, set bladder, gets involved in photographs, travels around, meets people, presses the flesh. Denies a few things. Denies... Well, you know, he, he, he hasn't got shrugs, anything to do more, with it. More shrugs his shoulders, really. His shoulders a lot. What are you going to do? I haven't got anything to do with it. But, you know, this idea that the... Um, that he immediately began talking about afterwards, and it's been echoed by by others, including Jack Warner, and, and and you can you can bet on this widely held view that this is all just the Americans and uh, uh, and the English being sore over losing out on the bids that they you know America wanted twenty twenty two lost to Qatar, England wanted twenty eighteen lost to Russia. Suddenly here we have these campaigns, a press campaign from originating in England, for, and then a, a judicial investigation uh, originating in in Washington. Um, this might seem like a kind of a crazy thing to think. I mean, on the one hand, uh, the media campaign in England, I mean, to suggest it's a campaign, suggest that there's some kind of organized thing going on, which it, which it isn't. It's a bunch of different newspapers all chasing the same story. Um, but you, you remember that before the actual uh, vote was taken on that in 2010, there was already lots of reports in the English media about the corruption that was going on in FIFA. There was members of the FIFA Executive Committee suspended for that vote because the Sunday Times had reported that they were corrupt before the vote ever took place. And in fact, the English media were lectured by the English bid uh, committee who at the time were really angry. Including the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, David Cameron was like, oh, you know, I can't remember exactly what Cameron said. He said, uh, talked about the unfortunate timing of the BBC Panorama programme. So, you know, that's what was happening there. Um, the, I don't think you can say that this media campaign, as Bladder characterises it, has anything to do with the bid because it was going on before, and may have may have certainly people in the England bid felt that, that it damaged their prospects. But you can't, I don't think, impugn the integrity. The American one is a, is a, is a, hmm, you know that's a, that's an interesting case. I mean, I'd say lots of people would look at that and go, "Can I really trust the United States government? Do I really trust that? Do I really believe?" That these people are acting, you know, absolutely in the, you know, that their that their hey, interests are all declared. It's it's just one of those times where, you know, they happen to be picking on or trying to find, you know, the dirt on someone who, you know, we think, you know, we're pr- pretty sure, you know, it could be guilty of what they're actually accusing them of. So is that a case, Is that then a case of um, are people sort of looking at it in the sense of my enemy's enemy is my friend? Well, you know, it's Al Capone getting caught on tax evasion, really, isn't it? However you want to get him, you get him. Yeah. And if if it so happens that the weapon that the footballing world happens to use is the US IRS Justice. <laughs> and the FBI, well, then, you know, that's 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 the. Well, it's not, to- it's not totally unlike the Lance Armstrong case, except yeah. that mysteriously the U.S. government decided to drop that at some point. The yeah. prosecutor said, uh, "Yeah, no, this case is being discontinued," but by that stage. 
there was so much momentum behind it. So many people had made statements. There was so much information for USADA to work off that they were actually able to do, essentially fulfill the function of a pretty much a legal body. It is similar to the Armstrong case, but it's much bigger and more political than the Armstrong case. You know, it's like it involves, um, I mean, you you had the Russian president denouncing this. You know, I, don't, I can't remember what Vladimir Putin had to say about Lance Armstrong. Well, nothing, but there were suggestions that he might have friends in high places in the US, mm. Lance. And certainly, I mean, US Postal was involved, so the government actually was directly involved in funding his team. Yeah. So there wasn't, but I do take your point. It wasn't, I mean, it was. American and a small pocket of Europe uh, who are interested in it. And in terms of governments, national government, really probably just America yeah. at any sort of... Uh, I mean, you know, like you've seen this whole thing happen. I mean, people like Jack Warner. I mean, Jack Warner clearly has no credibility. But when he <clears throat> when he says, uh, when, he, when he articulates this view, I think he's speaking for a lot of people. A lot of people see the United States government acting and go, well... We know that they don't necessarily tell the truth all the time about why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, there was a big controversy just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, kind of an ongoing one on about, uh, you know, Seymour Hersh, the journalist who, you know, one of America's top investigative journalists um, was the first guy to report on the My Lai massacre, for instance, in Vietnam. Um, a whole string of uh, things since uh, very, very well connected to the kind of uh, national security and military um, system in the United States, and it was reported extensively on a lot of these uh, things, uh, published a big article about, um, well, giving an account of the the assassination of Osama bin Laden, which completely contradicts every aspect of the official uh, account given by the government and, and put into, for instance, if you saw the movie Zero Dark Thirty, you'd have, you'd have seen a lot of, you know, the official kind of account. And essentially he's saying this is all complete, you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of people involved, and it didn't happen this way at all. It happened a completely different way. I mean, it's a fascinating article to read. Obviously, in the United States, there's massive criticism of Seymour Hersh. He's gone from being this eminent, uh, sort of, uh, you know, this journalistic grey eminence to kind of a, a madman. You know, people are suggesting he's uh, he's psychotic, and, you know, he's it's, it's, it's crazy. Well, the suggestion is that the article itself was quite rambling compared to some of his previous work, no? Well, it's a 10,000 worder. So you're going to have to ramble a little bit in 10,000 words. He's trying to get a lot in there. I mean, it's, it's like an entire series of Homeland crammed into one, <laughs> one uh, magazine article. But, I mean, it is, okay, you, you can't expect everything in there to be accurate. I'm sure that there are mistakes in there, but... It doesn't mean that some things aren't necessarily quite close to the bone. Just when you read it, you know, it's, it's a case of, well, hang on, we, we did hear all this from, from, say, the United States. And this is, this is over a far, you know, a far bigger issue, a more serious sort of an issue, you know. Um, which, which actually strengthens your argument in the fact, from the point of view of, well, if they're willing to completely fabricate something about the death of Osama bin Laden, which is... You know, the, well, then why wouldn't they uh, fabricate something about blood well, and FIFA? Well, not, not necessarily. Fa- I'm not suggesting. The fa- I mean, the, the, Seymour Hersh definitely alleges the fabrication occurred, and when they they had to make up this cover story about thing. I'm not suggesting there's any fabrication in this FIFA thing. It's just that the the bona fides necessarily can't be taken for granted. There's a case of, well, why is this really happening? You know, uh, and I think a lot of people around the world will look at that investigation and think to themselves, and you know, um, personally, I would I think it's a good thing that these people, these kind of uh, relentless sniffers out of uh, corruption <laughs> have got their teeth into FIFA. I mean, this is going to be an interesting thing to watch play out. I mean, I watched Prince Ali's speech to the Congress before the vote, and I thought, this guy, is this really the best that this guy can do? Yeah. 
He did not seem to me like a guy who really was even that interested. I was in a winning. bit concerned about that's the thing. I don't. And I think you might have mentioned on our earlier podcast. You, um, well, it's something we might actually cover in this one with regards to Michel Platini with Philippe actually as to why he didn't actually run. You don't have to. A lot of people run without the without any concept that they're going to actually win. They run for various different reasons, and it never struck me that Prince Ali was a guy going, oh, "I really want to be the president of FIFA." It struck me that he was doing it to whatever, get his name out there. I don't know, uh, just get a little bit of a few plaudits maybe for going up against Blatter, but he, what, I wasn't sure how safe FIFA was going to be in this guy's hands either. There was no conviction, there was no intensity to anything he said. He's, he's there, uh, he's had the best week any political challenger could possibly have. He should be crushing Blatter. Absolutely, point. you know, I would expect a, a serious uh, political candidate in a situation like that to be denouncing the hammer bladder in front of this big you know you're being you're being watched by people on TV all, all around the world you're being you're there with all of the Congress you can at least even if you know you're not going to win make sure that everyone who's going in there to vote for bladder is doing so with sort of with their head down a little bit you know this is kind of embarrassing but we still got to go and do it yeah the man should have been on every single chat show imaginable across the world there, and there he wasn't a sign of him there yeah. wasn't a sign of him until that speech <laughs> yeah not like not even a not a dicky bird out of the man it's bizarre but you know that's that's we'll talk a little bit more about that and, and I promise that we're not going to be talking about FIFA for much longer this is actually something Karina Blatter said in her Karina Blatter the daughter of Seth Blatter in an interview said look no one's going to be talking about this in two weeks other news will be top it's just the way it is <laughs> which is true I think uh, although the Americans will ensure it keeps coming back to the uh, to the top, I know people find sports politics really boring. Although I think this is one of the more interesting sports oh, yeah. politics stories. Mm. You know, it's like <laughs> it Come involves pretty, pretty much the whole world. I mean, we heard the Chuck Blazer cat apartment <laughs> yeah, story. On, what more do you want? On. There's amazing characters involved here: yeah. Jack Warner falling for the Onion spoof, all these things. Yeah, awesome. I just think there's yeah, and there's it's it's another it's just one more example of. What what does it actually take for people to resign these days? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, mean I think we have a great tradition in this country of people just like, well, brazen it out. Yeah, you know, another couple of weeks and we'll be grand. You know, one man's corruption allegation is another man's. You know, they, you've been you've been badly wronged. I mean, I, I think I think we've got to look too far in this country. To, we you know we look around certain counties. Uh, reliably return <laughs> people to the toil who let's say. Were they running in other counties people mightn't vote for? <laughs> people might say, well, what about that time when he was involved with the whole, you know, payments and the sort of under-the-counter? Uh, but in the home county, it's a case of, well, look, this guy's done a lot for our county. And I don't think uh, it's a kind of a thing which is replicated on a global scale almost with bladder. And uh, and it, it really isn't that difficult, I think, for people, particularly from this country, to understand. Leo Messi scored a nice goal at the weekend. <sighs> A couple of nice goals. Unbelievable. I mean, the first goal that Messi scored, just incredible. And I think what's what's amazing about it is not just the, you know, the run, the, the Maradona-like um, skill, the beating of four players to score a goal. I mean, this is it's one of his best ever goals. But the power that he showed in the first, uh, the very first part of the goal, where he gets the ball, comes to a dead stop, is looking at the marker, and then accelerates past him from the standing start down the outside um, the speed not just the speed but also the power which he's pushing this guy away you know keeping his balance but pushing the guy away in the kind of Jonah Lomu style mm-hmm. really impressive strength from Neil Messi kind of goes through nutmegs a guy runs in goes past another guy slams it in unbelievable um, in the form of his life exactly the kind of goal that a lot of us thought he was incapable of scoring exactly. ever again certainly by last summer 
I didn't suddenly think Messi was going to turn into a useless player or anything like that, but you start to see the slow regression, the, the changing of the style. A few He's going to be Jan Mulby yeah, now. Yeah, a few more assists here and there, but, but not that, and still some great strikes, but not goals where he runs past four players. I mean, he's, he's running past guys now who are 20, 21, and he's flying by them. He's fitter, he's, he's stronger, mm. and obviously he's, he's always going to be more skillful. Yeah, uh, well, his, his, certainly his physical condition has, caused a lot of, has caught a lot of eyes, and you know, they're going to go play Juventus. He's played in every league and Champions League game this season. He hasn't started every single one. The only one he didn't start that was the Real Sociedad game that caused the big ructions, remember, back in January. Oh, yeah. um, so he's played every league and Champions League game. I mean, you know, he, he should be looking tired by now, but he's not. Um, and there's a few articles, uh, one but one from Marca, not noted, not n- noted for their um, positive oh, press expense. about Lionel Messi. Uh, there is one factor that holds undeniable weight in any kind of Lionel Messi's transformation from last season, his physical shape. The Argentine's resurgence is term in which he has scaled heights that many thought, many including Owen McDowell here, yeah. thought were now beyond him, is inextricably linked to a strict diet. And they've got a photograph, two photos of Messi, You've seen the you've seen the moan. Yeah. One of them he's looking a little podgy, little a little uh haggard. Uh and the other one, he's got this sharply defined uh, jawline. He's got that cleft what was a dimple in his chin in photograph number one has now become a cleft. <laughs> like uh is it Cary Grant? Was he in the yeah, Cary yeah, Grant well, or he'll say he sounds like the kind of guy who would have had a Rock Hudson. Chin. No or Montgomery Clift. Montgomery Cleft? Clift, <laughs> whatever, Ken. Um, he looks, he looks lantern jawed fifties movie star is what uh, Lionel Messi now looks like. He, he incredible, and um, so Mark is saying, "Wow, this is really good, isn't it? Look at that transformation." Uh, they credited to Giuliano Giuliano Poser, a nutritionist based in uh, Sassile, they say near Venice, has provided the ingredients to get Messi back to his best. Since the pair have been working together, the superstar has looked noticeably slimmer, losing between four and five kilos. So they go on about that um, for a while. Um, What's his, what part of the diet? Uh, is there any information? He's provided he's, the ingredients okay. to get Messi back to his best, That's good. say Marca. Um, another uh, story I saw by Lee Roden, this is on ESPN, uh, gives the credit to somebody else. Barcelona's success in La Liga down to secret hero Rafael Paul. Rafael Paul is a, uh, a physical preparation genius. Uh, who, at uh, 28 years old, mm-hmm. um, he's got the Barcelona players excited about training again. Uh, essentially, uh, the motto of his, well, his boss actually, Barcelona, Cirillo, a good physical coach makes his players fall in love with training, and that's exactly what this guy's doing. Uh, loads of training with the ball, apparently. They, lo- you know, because Barcelona players love the ball. There's nothing they love more, and so he gets the ball involved in training, and. Uh, Somewhere or other, Lionel Messi uh, comes out of it just looking uh, fitter, faster, uh, more powerful than ever before. David De Gea on his way to Spain? It looks like it. Only a lot of paper. I mean, this has obviously been, been going on a while, but a lot of papers reporting today that De Gea has kind of indicated to some teammates that he's going to be leaving a fee of 25 to 30 million, which is pretty good for a player in the last year of his contract, but indicates, I think, his huge importance to Manchester United. Uh, I mean, they're losing their best player of the season just gone and such a difficult player to replace. Yeah. You know, when you think about uh, when, you ha- when you've got a really great goalkeeper, almost anybody who comes then after him looks bad by comparison. Every time, whoever it's going to be, 
I mean, is it going to be Victor Valdez? I don't know if they can go with Victor Valdez. I really don't, don't know if they can. Why not? Well, we saw him play against Hull, and there was a couple of high balls knocked in in that game, and he was lucky Phil Jones was heading away a lot of those balls because he did not look so good in some of those types of situations. Neither did David De Gea when he first started, albeit David De Gea was 19 and fairly scrawny at that stage. He was. I mean, De Gea is physically in much better shape. I mean, he's, he's not exactly, he's no Peter Schmeichel. He's not, he doesn't have this barrel sort of chest that Schmeichel had, but he's, uh, he's very strong now. Uh, whereas Victor Valdez, I'm not, I'm not so sure, um, a more mature goalkeeper, whether he can adapt them, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I would, I would see that as a big risk. Hmm. If I was Louis van Gaal, I'd be thinking, I'm not sure if this guy is going to be, there's no question that Victor Valdez is, has been a very good goalkeeper, um, but he's always played for Barcelona. Barcelona are a team where he's almost playing as a sweeper. You know, his, a lot of his work is with the ball at his feet. Nobody puts in a cross against Barcelona. It, it just doesn't happen. Whereas in the Premier League, that's what you're going to have to do a lot, a lot of the time. Uh, and it's a totally different situation for him. I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm not sure if they can take that risk. But um, it's a blow for them. Anyway, a, br- a brilliant signing for Real Madrid if they do get him. James Miller, a brilliant signing for Liverpool? Not as clear cut, although cheaper. Uh, it appears Milner's going to join Liverpool. Arsenal decided he wasn't worth the uh, supposedly £150,000 that Liverpool are offering him, which I don't know if it would have been enough to get Raheem Sterling to sign. Um, I wonder if he polled Liverpool supporters and asked them which who they'd rather pay £150,000 a week to, Raheem Sterling or James Milner, what they'd say. What do you think? What they would have said three or four weeks ago, I think, would have been Raheem Sterling. And you know what? I think you might still get a, a majority, a plurality for Raheem Sterling uh, in that case. But I suppose Milner's a bit older. Maybe it reflects his senior status. I mean, Milner, I think, is a good well, player. How could that be in any way a part of Liverpool's thinking, though? Well, oh, I, I, well I he's mean, a more I'm, senior player. You know, he, he's, a, he's a kind of a... He's going to come in, he's be a senior guy. He's won the Premier League title. You know what I mean? Whereas you, Raheem Sterling, need to know your place. You need to work your way up you need to work your way up the hierarchy, son. I think that might be the logic. Although that is not logical. It's not because Sterling not is. Lo- I mean, if you if you if you were the guys paying James Milner, a, you know, a graded scale of pay for the last ten years, and then you arrived at a situation where you had to pay him one hundred and fifty grand a week, Fair then enough. I suppose you could you could make an argument in that he had you have gotten you know the, the, what you paid for off James Milner for the last like 10 years yeah. but I know you uh, want a bit of not done that. FA Cup reaction we'd save that till later on in the podcast uh, if sure if you want, want. I, can we, I mean Arsenal won a great win a, a, almost an easy win for them really but made easy owned by their own brilliance that is the end of Kennedy's report on sport so he's almost like having a second captain in the team second captain first captain whatever Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Philippe Clare is ready to talk to us about the latest 
FIFA news, Philippe, which has been developing today, and that is that they keep putting out these statements trying to distance Jerome Valka from this $10 million payment. How bad is it for Blatter if Valka is proven to have acted in an underhand manner? <sighs> Difficult to say because, um, I mean, for Jerome Valka, I don't think there is much doubt in anybody's mind that um, this is just one thing too many, uh, as far as he's concerned. Um, I have to quote, the the time is extraordinary because, uh, you know, we get up this morning, we get this statement uh, from FIFA, which concludes neither the Secretary General uh, General, uh, Jerome Varg nor any other member of FIFA senior management were involved in the initiation, approval and implementation of the above project. The above project being this very mysterious diaspora legacy program, which nobody knew about and which um, Mr. Uh, Warner of CONCACAF, according to the U.S. authorities, used for his own profit. Um, and then a few minutes later, the, this letter is published, uh, which from the South African Federation, which is addressed to Monsieur Valk. So obviously he knew, so this, it's a catastrophe for Jerome Valk, absolute catastrophe. I don't know how he can possibly survive this. Uh, I think... Uh, Seb Blatter can probably um, talk about plausible deniability here. Uh, the way FIFA works, these kind of transactions have to be authorized, not by the president, not by, by Mr. Blatter, but by two people uh, who in this, uh, in this case uh, have, are Mr. Katner, who was um, the financial officer, basically, of, uh, uh, of uh, the operation, and, and Secretary-General uh, Jerome Valk. Blatter can distanciate himself from that, and there's no doubt he will do it. Um, it's a bit at the moment, and I'm using a friend's simile, which I found r- remarkably apt. It's a bit like being in 1989-1990 when there was this domino effect throughout the whole of communist Europe, and every time you switched on the t- television or, or the radio, you'd heard that another government had fallen, you know, one day Bulgaria, the next Poland, and so forth. It seems to be the same with FIFA, but the difference is that um, Seb Blatter is no Gorbachev. Seb Blatter can survive this. He can actually use this uh, to implement a genuine process of, ref- of reform. Uh, I know that sounds extraordinary to say such a thing, but I'm not sure it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to Blatter himself. For Valk, on the other hand, I, I genuinely can't see how he's going to survive. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe he still can survive, uh, Philippe, you never know, because FIFA have um, reacted to the publication of the letter by saying, the letter is consistent uh, to our statement where we underline that the FIFA Finance Committee made the final approval. So that's essentially the statement that you uh, just mentioned in your answer. Neither the Secretary General, Jerome Valk, and any other member of FIFA's senior management were involved in the initiation, approval, and implementation of the mm. project. The fact that the letter was addressed to him does suggest that he must at least have been involved in the initiation. <laughs> he, he had to tell someone about it. But yeah, but that's, that's completely untenable. It is totally, utterly untenable. Have you also noticed one thing? The date of the letter. Uh, no. How mysterious is that? 4th of March, is that right? 2008? Right. Well, the first two payments had been wired, according to the FBI, in January, three months before. And the third payment, the biggest one, was on the 7th of March. So the whole thing stinks of a cover-up and a means to, um, a means to uh, basically try to disguise 
an operation that was highly, I'm not going to use the word, the term fraudulent, but questionable. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, un under the veneer of, I don't know what, this Jasper Legacy Fund, which nobody can see any trace of anywhere. Philippe, just to take you back to what you said there about, I mean, you're saying it's untenable for Valka, but that Sepp Blatter will survive this despite seeming to stand by his man today. Ultimately, you think he'll have to dis he'll have to uh, probably throw Valka under the bus at some stage and then use all this as a, as a, me as a positive, as a means of reform? Yeah. You, you believe that? What's your logic there? The logic is that he's a survivor. Um, the logic is that, I mean, I'm sorry if the joke has already been made before, is that um, the only animal to survive a nuclear Armageddon is, is the cockroach, uh, we, we have always been told, and the Latin name for cockroach is blatter. And um, I think anything can happen around him and he will still survive. He's still got, this, he's still got the support of the confederations, and forget that. Who could oust him? You, the only way that he would be ousted would be if there was direct proof of his implication is something that shouldn't have happened. This hasn't been forthcoming yet. Uh, or if he decided to resign, he will never resign. Or if there was a genuine rebellion by the confederations, uh, at the moment it would be only UEFA. There's a lot of noise and saber rattling uh, in Nyon. And, but UEFA is not as united as perhaps Michel Platini would like it to be uh, believed. Um, you probably heard that it is thought that 18 of the 53 uh, federations which could vote and the FIFA Congress decided to vote for Mr. Blatter and Incl not Prince Ali. Including, apparently, France, what? Philippe. What's yes, going on absolutely. there? Yes, Le Legret uh, voted for, for Seb Blatter. So why? Uh, how can Platini not sort of enforce... Um, well, obviously, he's not running uh, the, the FFF, but it seems amazing <laughs> that, they, that they would vote for um, somebody else, given everything that had happened, uh, that they would defy the, the U, uh, UEFA president. What's happening there? Well, what's happening is simply that Michel Platini perhaps doesn't have the control of the UEFA as people think he has. Um, a, a confederations tend to be run a bit like dictatorships, it has to be said. When you, when you, when you see what's, what happens at their congresses, it's quite extraordinary. You really feel like you're know, back at, uh, in the Kremlin in 1964 or something like that. Uh, but on the other hand, the federations have all their independence and Noel Le Great used, used his. Uh, the reason why he voted for Blatter, he's made quite clear. It was a thank you vote to Joseph Blatter for awarding uh, the Women's World Cup to France, the 2019 edition of the Women's World Cup to France. Loyalties, you know, it's, it's the old blood thicker than water here. Um, and the, there's a lot of, I mean, you will hear Michel Platini say, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that, Europe united, blah, blah. No, it's much, much more complex than that. And, and again, what happened today uh, will not have a direct, direct consequences on Seb Blatter. I, at the moment, it's only because he's the man who brought Jérôme Valk back in the fold after he had kicked him out. Yeah. Don't forget that. Uh, which obviously is one of the great mysteries of FIFA and a question that has puzzled people for a very long time. How is it that Jérôme Varg could get back in? Um, well, only he knows. And the one thing that, you know, you're starting to, to wonder is whether this domino effect um, is going to carry on. You're wondering about what Jack Warner is he going to sing, as he promised he would. Mm. Uh, if Jérôme Varg... Uh, is in the, this very difficult position and has to step down. Will he go down on his own? I doubt it. 
So this is the thing. These are the things which might be a, a great worry for Seb Blatter more than the action of the confederations, who, believe me, could have a good look at themselves before they start having a go at FIFA. Speaking of uh, blood is thicker than water, Philippe, I saw an interview with Karina Blatter, uh, the yeah. only daughter of Sepp Blatter, who <clears throat> made a few uh, points, was defending her father, as you would expect. And she said, uh, she said at one point, you know, UEFA is supposed to be, um, you know, the strongest confederation. They're the ones with all these complaints. Why can't they run a candidate? And sort of stared <laughs> significantly at the interviewer at that point. She was saying, you know, why can't they run a candidate? I mean, there's, your, there's the key question in all this. What, what would your answer to that question be? Why, why is Michel Platini not running in this? I expected he would lose, but you can lose an election and run in the next election and, and maybe win. I mean, why, why was he not leading the fight? I think he might have been defeated by a wider margin than um, Prince Ali. Hmm. Um, it does not have, as the vote has proved, he doesn't have the full support of his own confederation. He has the support of the majority of his confederation, without, without a doubt. He's got some very, very strong allies there. He's got allies in some other parts of uh, the uh, um, football world. And maybe the Qatari Federation vote he would have had, I don't know. Um, but UEFA is a confederation that is not that well liked uh, across the world. Is that deserved? Though, because I, even, a lot of this... Uh, the reporting of this story over the last week uh, essentially polarised into almost UEFA versus FIFA and uh, mm. the European countries versus a lot of, basically a lot of the other countries around the world. Is that a fair characterization? And uh, why is it, do you think, that UEFA seem to be so unpopular worldwide? Well, it's unpopular because it's the wealthiest confederation by a distance because it's, it's overrepresented at the executive committee uh, because it has got more representatives in the World Cup than any other confederation, and on and on and on and on. Uh, you, you, you can carry on like that for a very long time. UEFA is seen as a confederation which is interested by UEFA, and that's that. Even though there are, uh, it has to be said, cooperation programs which have been put in place, that there now start to be um, dual initiatives uh, with um, between confederation, various confederations and, and UEFA. Still, the image is still very much that of a confederation which is um, far too wealthy, far too represented at, at the, the executive level, uh, and also with some personalities who perhaps grate a little bit with others. Uh, so you cannot, um, we shouldn't exaggerate that. But I do hope that in the current mess, people will start to realize that instead of putting everything at FIFA's door, uh, which is a normal, completely natural uh, reaction, we have to look at the way football is run by the confederations. Never forget this very simple fact. Confederations are not members of FIFA, but confederations choose the members of the executive committee. I mean, this is insane. It's the whole governance is completely crazy. Mm. So what we have is that confederations who obviously can't govern themselves, certainly the case for CONCACAF under Jack Warner, certainly the case for CONMEBOL, certainly the case I would, I would say for um, CAF, um, and, and actually nobody's cleaning that. Mm. And, um, and, and then afterwards, some of these people are trying to uh, show themselves as the knights in white armor, the people who are defending the values of football. This is honestly truly laughable. Um, the problem runs so deep. Uh, it's not just with Sepp Blatter. Uh, it's not if, of course, this is uh, proved um, with Jérôme Valg. 
it's not just with FIFA, it's not just with the executive committee, it's absolutely everywhere. Just lastly, Philippe, um, the collection of UEFA fat cats and abrasive personalities um, are all going to be gathering in Berlin this <laughs> week to have a big meeting ahead around the Champions League final they're going to meet up. What yep. do you think is going to be on their agenda? I mean, Michel Platini talks about, you know, we're going to talk about what to do uh, in Berlin next week. Is it simply for you, for now, a question of sitting on the sidelines and hoping that the um, uh, US Department of Justice can solve all their problems for them? Or uh, is there any sort of next step that they can actually take? I'm wondering if you're not going to have um, a uh, rejigging of this old idea of an expanded euro. Do you remember the, that idea that um, the Euro could be a bit like um, the Copa America, which means you can invite a few other teams, uh, for example. Well, if you had a Euro and you invited, say, Brazil and Argentina. Argentina and Brazil and the United States. I don't know if John Delaney would like that. <laughs> I mean, would that come at the expense uh, you know, of existing brands? I don't know. It's still a Euro. After all, the Copa America is supposed to be just a comparable countries, but that doesn't prevent them from having taking place in, in the United States. Uh, so... No, maybe an idea like this is going to be rekindled. Um, I wouldn't be, certainly it would be discussed. Um, the question of a boycott is going to be, um, I, I was a bit surprised by that. Uh, I can imagine with some difficulty UEFA deciding to boycott a uh, competition which is held in, in one of its own member states, i.e. Russia. I, I don't think that would go down too well. Um, but, you know, I, as I said, there's an awful lot of saber rattling. And I think there's a, a will to, dist, again, is to distantiate themselves from what has been happening. You know, we shouldn't forget that the reason why Michel Platini is the president of, of, of UEFA and vice president of FIFA is also because he was the, the first step on, on the ladder. And the second and the third and the fourth, he was guided by somebody called Seb Blatter. You know, we shouldn't forget that. Yep. Um, and which uh, it, it's almost as if it had never happened. And Seb Blatter was still thinking of Michel Platini as his natural successor not that long ago. So it's only far more recently, and probably I think the, the 2010 was a crucial year for that, that the paths of the two men have, uh, you know, uh, followed their own way and that the there's been literally a war being waged between their organizations and perhaps even between themselves, despite the, the links that they have uh, with each other. Um, so, in fairness, apart from uh, more rhetoric, I don't quite know what uh, UEFA can come up with this weekend. Well, maybe we'll have a surprise, but I don't think a boycott will be implemented. I don't think so. But maybe they'll toy with an idea of uh, organizing a, another competition. Okay, it's uh, fascinating. So, Philippe, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So even Jerome Valka, if, as uh, Philippe suggests, eventually Blatter does have to throw Valka under the bus, that's, not, that's still not going to kill Seth Blatter. In fact, it may even strengthen him, according to the cockroach, says Philippe. <laughs> it's true. Um, it is actually true. It's spelled Blatter, as in T-T-A at the end instead of T-T-E, or that is the genus, <laughs> the Latin word for genus, including cockroaches. But... Uh, that is how you say it, I suppose, in if, in an English accent, or if you're saying it in German, they don't really tend to say the or bladder, so it sounds a bit like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do bladder known is to pox the verb. Uh, bladdern is the name of uh, is the name that they call well smallpox in uh, German. So there's, I suppose, there's a few different um, 
few different angles you could go there if you were a headline writer in German. Rafa Benitez signed off in his career in Italy the weekend with defeat to Lazio. It meant no qualification for the Champions League. And we're joined by Gabriele Maccotti to talk about this ahead of his move to Real. Gabriele, did that result take the gloss off his time with Napoli, do you think? Um, yeah, no, it probably does. It shouldn't because, frankly, um, you know, I always find it kind of weird when we go and we we judge a manager's body of work on, on a single game. Um, but inevitably, um, you know, it'll cost the club some 40 million euros. And you also know that, you know, had the shoe been on the other foot, Rafa would have talked incessantly about his top three finishes and stuff like that. So I think <laughs> in this situation, it is like kind of fair to do that. Um, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, and it's one of the situations that I think you can really argue um, from either side, if you're if you're a Rafa hater, uh, you will point out that they took over took over a side that finished second uh, the year before, and that um, they then the next season they finished third, and this season they finished fifth. So they actually got worse. And that in the meantime, you know, he had a net spend of, of close to fifty million euros. Um, he absolutely made a made a mess of it in the uh, in the Champions League. Uh, this year in the, in the preliminary rounds where they somehow contrived to lose to Athletic Bilbao with some keystone cops defending. And uh, and then mess it up again, uh, um, obviously, but this season. I mean, there's no way that Lazio are a better team than, uh, than Napoli, and yet Napoli will finish the season in fifth place. And on top of all that, having been knocked out of the Champions League, they get to the Europa League semifinal, and they somehow contrive to get knocked out by, by Dnipro. Uh, with one of the lamest uh, return-like performances, I think, in recorded history. So that's the uh, that's the anti-Rafa. Do you guys want the pro-Rafa? Yeah, go for it. You guys want the, the, the <laughs> whatever way you <laughs> feel. You don't, you don't have to give, you don't have to give us the broad spectrum. Whatever whatever you feel about Rafa. Okay, so the pro-Rafa argument is that uh, yeah, they finished second under Mazzari, but that was playing negative defensive football and not the brilliant clever football that Rafa plays. Um, that he brought a serious evolution uh, to the team. That you know, in his first season in the Champions League, they were in a very, very tough group. They managed to beat Borussia Dortmund um, and Arsenal, which is no mean feat. Um, and then in the second season, of course, they went all the way to the Europa League semi-final, and they would have gone through if not for a ludicrous uh, refereeing decision in, in the first leg, which then put them in a bad mood, and uh, you know, is part of the reason why they got killed on the return leg. Um, and he's been let down by individual mistakes this season, um, mostly from his defenders. Uh, the the owner doesn't want to spend money on defenders. He only wants to buy spend money on attacking players. And uh, and, and 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 really, they've been unfortunate. They they had nine penalties in Serie A this season, and they missed five of them. And if Gonzalo Higuain doesn't put his penalty over the bar, Jason Punchin style then uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation because, you know, he'd be leaving them in the Champions League, which is where he found them. Has uh, the type of football that Rafa Benitez tries to play uh, evolved in any way? Because um, I see that Napoli were among the top goal scorers in Serie A, but also have the worst defence in the top ten, which isn't, uh, they, they don't sound like very Rafa Benitez statistics. Now, Ken, you're right. This is the most, you know, forget all your old Rafa Benitez stereotypes. Um, it's like this team was coached by somebody else, and I don't know what the deal is because you know, and it, it's been weird. It's it's a new, it's a different Rafa. Um, 
I have, maybe it's the fact that, you know, he didn't, he never got a home in, in Naples, but he lived, he lived in a hotel next to the training ground the whole time. And maybe it was all the seafood he ate. You'll, you'll notice it's a much bigger Rafa as well. Um, but he, um, it's, it's very un Rafa like, uh, they conceded 54 goals this season, which is which is absurd. 54 goal, goals for a team in the top five uh, in a 38 game season is is just is just insane. Um, I, one of the reasons he's been blamed uh, because he's stuck to this 4-2-3-1 system um, obsessively, and, um, and 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 the two in front of the back four. You know, often they've been they've been passers. He's always changed them up all the time, and uh, and they didn't have the requisite cover for the back. I, I don't know. I I think part of it is also Albiol, who Rafa brought in, is a fantastic passer, but you know he's a little bit on the uh, on, on the slow side. I think Rafa's evaluation of his goalkeepers was also pretty poor uh, between last season and this season, and and I think a lot of these things contributed to it. Um, I also think. And this is again quite unrafa like. Um, his front four contributed very little off the ball. And if you can maybe, um, you know, you can kind of expect that a little bit from Iguain. You know, people like Callejon, um, uh, like Mertens when he played, like Insigne, you know, it was like they would lose the ball and they just kind of turn and, and just sort of watch their fullback, you know, deal with the uh, deal with the attack from the other team. And and that's that's a that. That's really on Rafa, like, and B, it just doesn't seem to make much sense in, in the modern game. Gabriel, what about his ability to get on with his bosses? This is something that he has struggled with a lot of places. He's been at it eventually, anyway, at Valencia, Liverpool, Chelsea. Has he shown any better uh, ability to take the, the kind of shit he's going to have to take at Real Madrid? Um. Well, I take issue with you a little bit on Chelsea. On Chelsea, I thought he was on his best behavior vis-a-vis his bosses, uh, given you know the way he was viewed when he came on. Um, he's done he's done okay in public, uh, although I think in private now people reveal all this uh, all, all this negative stuff, um, and they would have kept him around. Uh, again, a different Rafa, perhaps in uh, in some ways. With his players, I think he's had a few issues. Um, Certainly, you know, a guy like Mark Hamsik, who he made captain so important to Napoli and everything, you know, he was dropped for, for, for a number of games. Uh, certainly not somebody who thrived under Rafa at all. And then you have situations like Gonzalo Higuain. Now, the second to last week of the season, um, you've, Napoli were terrible in, in, in the first half. Uh, and uh, Higuain was, um, he was substituted at halftime. And he was absolutely furious uh, at his substitution. I'm trying to imagine Bale or Cristiano having a stinker or Sergio Ramos or somebody at Real Madrid and uh, and Rafa making the same decision and getting away with it. And it is hard to imagine. And I think that, you know, that could be his, his biggest hurdle um, at the Bernabeu. Okay, we'll uh, wait and see on that one. Listen, Gabriele, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. No problem, boys. Take care. Hold on a second, I think we have to back up here about this bigger Rafa that we're going to be seeing in Spanish football because if he's eat, eating seafood, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I thought I thought fish is quite good for you. 
a lot of good oils there. I don't see. I don't really eat seafood. I don't eat seafood generally, and I'm always protein, told isn't it? you That's should be eating that yeah. good protein, good, nice, good, healthy oils, all the rest of it. Yeah, maybe certain types of seafood that applies to, and not others. Well, are What's you frying them in though? Are you just exactly? Are you just having no. a? I mean, grilled fish healthy enough. Fried fish, not, not so much. Okay. And I mean, to be honest, it tastes better fried. And are you just sitting there on with a big plate of fish? Well, I'm not sitting else? there at all. Unfortunately. Or is the plate of fish maybe uh, on a on a bunch of uh, a big uh, bowl of rice, yeah. or possibly some uh, some pasta? Um, I'm seeing like kind of um, like fried potatoes yeah. as well. You know, also covered in oil. Bravas, I yeah. have a feeling. Yeah, potato bra- potatoes, bravas. Yeah, a few potatoes. I have, I have there's your problem. They'll get you a little bit of cream on top of them as well, on top of the salsa there and the. Listen. I would expect so. I don't think Rafa is cooking this. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just going to put it out there. His, his, are his family back in Liverpool? They are. So he's there working hard all day long, goes home to a quiet, empty apartment or hotel, whatever it is. I don't think Rafa's cooking too much for himself there. No. So he's not really 100% sure what's going into a lot of that group. No, he could just be there like, you know, Louis C.K. in a Cinnabon or something. <laughs> you know, the lonely, the lonely man on the road, uh, just grabbing whatever convenience food comes to hand, you know, and it's often, uh, Sad situation. We've got more FIFA chat in the first podcast we put out there earlier on today. Also, Ashley McConville and Anthony Moyles on uh, Dublin's hammering of Longford and what it tells us about Gaelic football uh, in general. So have a listen to that if you get a chance. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening. Check out irishtimes.com forward slash second cast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.